I am an expert in behavioral blind spots and identifying them and how they're hindering greater success. And by resolving them, you get greater success. Today, we're so fortunate. We have Karen Brown. She's the CEO and executive leadership coach at Velocity Leadership Consulting. Karen, thanks for coming down on a busy Friday afternoon. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Karen, tell me a little bit about your business and who you serve. So Velocity Leadership Consulting, our mission is to elevate leadership performance and impact with greater velocity and ease. And we do that through one-on-one executive coaching using neuroscience techniques. So everything we do is scientifically proven effective. Oh, there's that E word, right? Mm -hmm. In some of the backstory for you, there's a journey. Karen was nice enough to let me know she has a book out and I read the book before getting together. And so if I'm the business owner and I just heard you say we help leadership in velocity, what does that look like when you show up day one at my business? So what that looks like is I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, most of which I probably know the answer to, but I want to hear what you have to say and how you say it. This goes back to something called neuro-linguistic programming, which we're also, me and all of our coaches are experts in, which is the science of the words that you use to express yourself. And it gives us a window into what's going on for you. Specifically, what are the blind spots in your behavioral patterns that are holding you back from higher levels of success. So we tend to work with either high performers or the person in the organization who is the trouble spot, shall we say. We also work in areas of succession. So maybe someone's been identified as the successive candidate and maybe they have some developmental work to do. Whatever it is, it's going through those blind spots and identifying them. So I'm really adept and I would say if I have a special gift, it's that, being able to see behavioral blind spots in an instant. Just from what I ask someone and how they respond, I can see exactly what's going on and then ask them a question to open that up even further so that they can see it. Is there a, by and large, at some point, you pretty much see all the problems that you can see if you've been doing it long enough? Well, I think that until a new problem emerges and then I go, well, I haven't seen it all yet. I thought I had. So is there a typical leadership challenge blind spot that you see most of the time? Yes. Number one that every single executive we work with talks about is not having enough time to achieve what they want, which is ultimately, it is a blind spot and it's also a limiting belief, which is just something that they thought maybe was possible. They tried it. They tried to achieve it. They couldn't get to it and they gave up on it. Hopeless. There's no hope of getting it fixed. All right. So I'm your leader and I have more to do than day. And you come in and go, Bob, here's what I think would be a good remedy or this is what I would tell you to do to get control of your time. What would you tell me? First of all, I don't tell you very much. I ask questions because you have the answers. You've just not ever had someone like me that can look behind the scenes and ask the right question to unearth the answer. So I'll ask you a question like, okay, look at your schedule and what is the biggest time bandit that you have? Where do you lose the most time? And then we go from there. I'll say, okay, great. So what can we do differently with that? And first of all, we need to identify, okay, what's the point on the horizon that we're going for? What will your schedule look like when you do have enough time to achieve everything 
And you also have that crazy idea called work-life balance where you are no longer working at home on weekends and evenings and your spouse and your family don't have to put up with that from you anymore because I guarantee every executive out there, I've not met one yet, that their family doesn't do that. They all do that. So when that executive goes through the training and all of a sudden he or she starts showing up on the weekends, how does that resonate with the family? Oh, they love it. So a couple of quick examples of that. So one client, his wife actually used to work in the same company. It's a large regional bank here in the area. So he was very quick when we first started working together to tell me, well, you know, my wife worked in the company, so she knows how it is. I said, oh, so what you're telling me is she will fall prey to the same excuses that you use. And he just sat there and went, well, yeah, probably. He's the same client who when I said to him, okay, look, here's the truth. You do have enough time to get everything done during the day and not work at night nor on weekends. You just gave up on this because you didn't find the right way to achieve it. And I'm here to help you with that. So then fast forward, he wrote in his notes, he typed in his notes that day in our client interface system. He said, Karen said it was possible. (laughs) And I remind him of that now because three short weeks later, here we are. He's not working at night. He's not working over the weekend. His wife actually had the realization, the awakening of, oh, wow, yeah, I was falling into the same excuses that you did because I didn't think it was possible either. It was a goal that I had way back when that I just let go of because I didn't find the right strategy and I couldn't make it happen. So I just gave up. I imagine there's some level of pushback. Oh, yeah. And when you get the pushback from them, what's your typical rejoinder to them when they're pushing back? Well, my favorite thing to say is, okay, so how do other people that are more successful than you do it? Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett. How do they do it? And I say, what's the evidence that shows you that they've achieved a higher level than you? They can't argue that. Then they go, hmm. And I say, do they still have 24 hours in a day like you do? Or have they invented more time somehow? You were talking about in the beginning, and velocity is part of what you do. And you mentioned a three-week time frame for transformation. What's the time frame typically that you see for a committed student that's willing to be coached? Oh, this is where it gets really great. So someone who's willing to do the work and make the changes, right? We always start out with a six-month engagement, and I always just let this play out. I don't set up the client for this. I let them discover it for themselves. About six weeks in, we have accomplished all of the goals and objectives that we've established at the beginning of the engagement. And we come to that session, and I review the goals and objectives with them and say, okay, so have you achieved what you wanted to there? Yes. How about there? Yes. How about there? Yes. And then the light bulb goes on and they go, holy cow, I've just achieved everything that we set up for six months in six weeks. Wow. Now can we work on this and this and this and this? Of course. As you come into an organization and there's, I'm sure that everybody that looks at this leader goes, that's a change. What's the dynamic in the organization when the leadership goes through this transformation? Oh, the impact is enormous. 
enormous. I've gotten a lot of feedback from others in the organization who have said, wow, the change is so remarkable. It's marked difference, transformational. And this person is, they were good before to work with, or they were a good leader. And now they have just completely leveled it up. And they are delightful to work with. They are a pleasure to work with. And now they're helping me. I can see that they're helping other people because they're so much better. They're adept at actually effectively coaching their team. In the financial metrics of a company, is that something that you observe pre and post your engagement? Yeah. We have KPIs that measure all of that, and they're on our website. Yeah. What do you typically see? I typically see a 48% increase just across the board, and even oftentimes that'll translate into net profit. You know, I think about the listener going, wow, I've had consultants, I've had this and that and the other, and there's a cost. And I think if you have a fairly move up, good number move up in your bottom line, then it's an investment, not an expense. What many of the folks may not know is that you participate in some extreme sports. And the part that I'm interested in is not only the fact that you participated, but you recognized along your journey that you needed to bring on a coach or two. Let's talk about that moment when you were doing what you were doing and getting what you got. And you finally decided that I have to take and get somebody to help me or coach me. Yeah. Well, to explain that, I need to back up even further than that. So I spent the better part of 20 years being a successful senior executive in the corporate world and also being an internal business coach for my team members. Now, this is before coaching was even a thing, right? You just started very young. Yes, I did. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> God love you. So this is before coaching was a thing. And you just did this as team building, right? And you just did it because you were a good leader and you wanted to bring your people along and you wanted to help them perform. Well, I was very adept at coaching. And I also found that there was always this place that we couldn't access. You know, we could only take that coaching work so far. What I later found out through my journey to the Ironman is that what I was feeling was the unconscious mind and neuroscience techniques, which is one of the reasons why I founded Velocity. And that's why we do the kind of work that we do. Because what we were coming up against were blind spots, behavioral blind spots. And the way that you work through those is through unconscious mind and neuroscience techniques, neurolinguistic programming, like I talked about earlier, and a whole bunch of other stuff that you have to go to school and study a long time for and be fascinated with human behavior, which I am. Then learned that and then fast forward to the beginning of my Ironman journey, decided to pursue this crazy, big, hairy, audacious, gargantuan dream of mine, which had existed for 28 years where I wanted to compete in the toughest race on the planet, which is the Ironman World Championships, as a total recreational athlete, right? Up to this point, I had never ridden a road bike. I was a terrible swimmer. I had never run a marathon. And I had never completed a triathlon of any length. And yet I wanted to do a race that's 2.4 mile swim in the ocean, 112 mile bike ride, and a 26.2 mile marathon. Absolutely nuts, right? So I finally discovered limiting beliefs, which are, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Oh, and shameless plug for the book, holding it up <laughs> for the folks that are in the video space. You can see it on the video. Yes. Uh, it will be in the show notes in the link. And I read it as well. Yes. Yeah. Good book. 
Pick it up. You'll learn lots. Thank you. So what had held me back for 28 years from even pursuing the Ironman and come to find out other professional goals that I didn't realize I was holding myself back from is something called limiting beliefs. When we think or say, well, I don't have enough money, time, talent, buy-in, whatever, fill in the blank to achieve X. Well, that's always what I thought about the Ironman. That's what holds all of us back. This is a whole nother show, Bob, but this is how our unconscious mind is wired. It goes back to caveman days. I can explain that in another episode. But come face to face with that, learned how to conquer that, which I also give you the key to that in the book. And there's also keys to that on my website, which I'll go into later. And decided to pursue the Ironman and just ready to jump in with both feet. Like, come hell or high water, I am doing this. Well, then I realized, oh, crap. I don't know the first thing about this. I don't even know what I don't know yet. So it might be a good idea to do something different than I've ever done before, which is to hire a coach right out of the gate. Because again, I don't even know what questions to ask, right? So I was actually at a barbecue and I had just started verbalizing to other people that I was pursuing this dream. Did they move away from you? Yeah, rapidly. (laughs) They ran the other direction. And this very kind person who I had just met and shared my dream with said, oh, you probably want to hire a coach. And I just played it off very well, I must say. (laughs) But inside I was like, oh my God, that's the best idea ever. And I said, oh yeah, yeah. Do you know where I could find one? He said, yeah, I have a couple of names actually. My cousin did this. Monday morning, I was interviewing the coach that I ended up hiring who had gone herself to the Ironman World Championships multiple times and had helped other athletes get there as well. Hired somebody that had done what I wanted to do. That was the golden ticket. And I had to talk this person into taking me on, right? I was a super no one, super no one. And I finally just said to her, look, I will do whatever you tell me without question. And I will be your most committed athlete, your most committed client. And that was true. And I said, you know what? The other thing about me is I will never give up. Never. I will do whatever it takes to get there. And that's exactly what I did. That's another key in the book, by the way. That's a committed student coachable. Absolutely. Yeah. The part that struck me as I was reading the book and then thinking about what you do for a living and the genesis of this notion about bringing the coaching and bringing the insights from something that's out of your comfort zone. And I think about gender issues. You come in to talk to the quote CEO of the company. Do you see much pushback in expectation do you get much of that in your industry anymore? In expectation as far as what? They go, you're diminutive. At what point in time they go, oh, she is the coach. Do you get much of that anymore? Some. Depends on how big their ego is. And I get it from women too, but from the opposite side. From women, I get it. It's their disbelief. I'm not enough. Or what I call the oxygen mask syndrome that I've got to help everybody else before I help myself or before I do something to help myself. And I always say, well, you're going to suffocate first. That's just how it's going to be. And that is what cuts through and alleviates the pushback, which is me being direct and just telling them what I see and saying, well, how's that working out for you? It doesn't look to me like it is working out for you. I'm a fan of direct. Oh, yeah. Works every time. At some point in your athletic endeavors, Were you still working in the corporate world? Yeah. In fact, this is the other reason for founding Velocity. 
A year after I crossed the finish line at the Ironman, at age 46, I might add, I was fired from being a CEO. And I thought I was doing a really great job. I'm somewhat hard-headed, or at least I used to be back then. I'm less so now, thank goodness. But it took that level of pain for me to recognize my blind spots. Because at first I blamed the board, I blamed politics, all the typical stuff. You know, they just can't see my vision and et cetera. Then I finally had to come to grips with what really caused me to be fired, and I should have been, which was these behavioral blind spots that I was unaware of. Tough pivot. Yeah. You know, I think about that. And so here you are on whatever day it was after you're going like, well, I haven't ever been fired. What was that thought process like going on between your ears? Well, like a lot of achievers, this is why I bring this up, because probably everyone listening to this podcast, we're all type A, we're all achievers, right? We've all risen to a nice level of success. And that's also where our blind spots live. Because then what was going on between my ears was, okay, if I had these blind spots, what was it costing me and others and the organization? That's when I began to feel really badly about it. Like I could have been so much better than I was. I could have been so much more effective than I was. And I really wish that someone or something would have pointed this out to me earlier, that I would have seen it and been able to do something about it. And so that's a major reason why I founded Velocity, because I thought, I don't want to see that negative impact or opportunity cost anymore. Do you think you would have recognized the blind spots without this event? That's a great question, because amongst achievers, there does have to be a level of pain to get us to sit up and pay attention. I will say this. I would have sat up and listened had it come from the mouth of someone I really respected. I highly respected them and they said, hey, sit your butt down and let's have a direct conversation about this. If they would have pointed them out to me, yes, I would have set up and take note. So at some point, so you left the job and you chose, you made a choice. Did you start Velocity right after that? I did. That had to be pretty riveting. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> Ballsy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I felt like that was the right thing to do. That was just like with Iron Man. I felt like that's what I'm meant to do. That's what I'm called to do. That's the mission. And even though I'm afraid right now and I don't know exactly what I'm doing, I do have the experience and the credentials and the background to know what I'm doing. But at the same time, I was also still developing myself. And I think that's a good thing, you know, to be able to walk through that with other people. That's our gift that we give to other human beings, right? To be able to walk alongside someone, you know, instead of pushing them or pulling them, you know, to walk alongside them and say, yeah, I get it. I think about all the instances of fear through your early life. Lots. And you developed a mechanism to deal with fear and the fear post this firing. What do you do mentally or physically or practically to help manage that fear to where you have an action plan? First of all, I become aware that that is what's showing up. Oh, yeah, this is fear. And actually, I call it my friend fear. So I literally like visualize that it's a friend showing up. 
and it makes it much easier to embrace it. And I've read lots of research and watched lots of videos about this. There's one from a great female skier that's fairly recent, the winningest female skier ever in history. And what they all share is that you have to embrace fear. You can't just block it out and continue to block it out because eventually it will overcome you. So you can't just crowd it out or turn away from it or whatever phrase you want to use. You ultimately end up having to embrace it in some way and walk through it. And I found that to be the most helpful, honestly, and whatever outlet that was in. And I think that also has to do with expanding your comfort zone, right? I never look at that anymore as stepping outside my comfort zone. I look at it as an endless expansion of our comfort zone that never snaps back. In thinking about, you described the before time on the three events at the Ironman, and you were talking mentally about what you were doing, getting into the mindset. And so you've got the swimming and somebody's drafting you. (laughs) Drafting me, like the slowest swimmer on the planet. Someone's drafting me. So, you know, you think about it and then you come out of the water and then there's a routine to get ready to go. And then I think you did the bike next and then the run was last. And so there's all those transitions and notions. And we're talking about hours of exertion. Almost 16 hours in my case. Yeah. I think about in the day-to-day world, when you talk to a CEO and the CEO says, I have this raft of problems. The company has this, 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 and this. How do you convey that angst or fear of management in a discipline that they can adopt? We walk into it, first of all. I just ask them point blank. Okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? Let's have it. What's your greatest fear? Let's have it. Because there's power in verbalization. First of all, the power of fear is almost alleviated after you verbalize it, after you let it out, you let it go. It's so much easier to deal with. You just say it. It feels so much better. See, I have to see it. Yeah. I'm a big fan of if I have a challenge, then I'll take and convert it to written format. And then once I do the written format, I'll go, okay, well, can they kill you or eat you? No. So that isn't going to happen. And I step through all the things that I can think of, course of action when I'm done, and then I can manage that and check it off and work through. So that's my mechanism. Doesn't mean it's the right one. It's just the one I use. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when you write things out like that and then you see them on the written page, that's actually a doorway into your unconscious mind. So I'm not surprised at all that that really works. That's what we do to conquer limiting beliefs. You've got to write it down first, list it, interrupt that thought pattern and then rewire it. So that's exactly what you're doing there. Well, that's where you're calling fear your friend. You've recharacterized it. And so much of that, and I see in the business owners and with my kids, and I think that there's that scarcity mindset periodically that comes into play. And I think there's scarcity of time and, you know, the role model, you have to work your butt off all the time to be successful. And you you have to work smart, not hard necessarily. So we've talked about the Iron Man. Well, you didn't stop at the Iron Man, did you? No. Classic underachiever. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will tell you this, you know, at the time that I chose to finally pursue it, it was the biggest thing I could think of. I really felt like my mind couldn't expand beyond that. It was the biggest thing that I could fathom until the year leading up to when I went to the Iron Man World Championships and I ended up reading a book that's wonderful by a guy by the name of Rich Roll, Finding Ultra. Excellent. And what he described was this 
ultra triathlon called the Ultraman, which is a three-day, 320-mile triathlon where you circumnavigate the big island of Hawaii. And that blew my mind. And for about six months, I was pissed at him. I was like, <laughs> really? You've moved the bar. You've moved the bar. Now there's something bigger and tougher and longer than the Iron Man. And I can't wrap my head around it. I don't even know how you would do that. Like literally, I was training 22 to 24 hours a week by then. And I just thought, surely you don't just double that, right? Because this is more than double the distance. Because there's a diminishing return. Oh, yeah. So just could not wrap my head around it. So I just sat with that for a while. Crossed the finish line, still continued to sit with it, just contemplate it. How could you do that? How would you go about that? Which is another technique that I think is really effective for us to contemplate things and figure things out. Because what we're actually doing is asking our unconscious mind. I call it stewing. I have yeah. to stew on it. Yeah. You know, and it usually comes to me behind the windshield. Yes. When we're not forcefully thinking about it, when we're not pushing on it, then it just bubbles up and you go, where'd that idea come from? Wow. That's our unconscious mind at work. And one day when my swim team swam a 10K in the pool, which is not that much fun, let me tell you, it all clicked in. And I thought, you just build the volume. It's not double. You just build it systematically. And then I thought, I want to do that. So then I basically just jumped headlong into the ultra endurance world. And then over the next six years, completed 18 of the world's most difficult races all over the globe and just had a ball and continued to expand myself. I think mileage is probably the right and wrong term. And you think about all the places that you ran and all the challenges and just weird stuff. Like one, you lost a straw. And the other one, your stem was too short on your tire. You know, you think about the odd things you have to learn to cope and overcome in creating resiliency. When you look back over your ultra marathon journey or career, what do you think of the top one or two takeaways that you bring into your coaching from that? Ah, uh, that's easy. Number one, I can do anything. I am truly capable of carrying out anything I can think of. And so is every other human being. That's the fascinating thing to me about our unconscious mind. It's a spectrum, right? And on one side of the spectrum is limiting beliefs. You're thinking up reasons why you can't do something. The other side of the spectrum is the ability to carry out anything you can think of. I mean, there's a gajillion stories out there, right? Iron Cowboy, the Epic Five, I mean, the Ultraman, and scientific endeavors. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Business endeavors, on and on. So that's the really cool part. So that was my number one takeaway that no matter what happens, I can figure it out, I can get through it. And that's another thing I think that we bring as coaches to our engagements with executives because they have a sort of myopic view of that. You know, it's like, okay, well, for these things over here, yeah, I can do anything. But it's these blind spots over here where they lose that ability, right? So that's what we very deftly point out. Now, the second thing that I took away from my ultra career is compassion. And that might sound surprising, but first of all, compassion for myself, because I was a grinder. Like I would just grind myself into the ground, right? Get to care of the machine. Yeah. Yeah. But also mentally, spiritually, emotionally. So I learned compassion for myself, which was a tough thing. Again, I'm kind of hard-headed. You hold yourself to a standard. 
you know, and go like, well, this must mean if I don't do that, then. Yeah, I should be able to do that first time out. I should be here by now. My business should be here by now, or this person should be here by now, or things like that. Then the other thing that it taught me was compassion for others, that seeing people in very difficult, challenging circumstances and realizing that most of the time people are doing the best that they can or the best that they think they can. And they're out there. Yes. And to just meet them where they are, not where I think they are. There's a big difference there. And I think as leaders, that's a very powerful insight because, again, how our minds, how our brains are wired is to be assumptive. Oh, well, if I see somebody and they're doing this or they're not doing this, well, I'm going to assume that this is what's going on. They're just lazy or whatever we assume. It's hardly ever true. It's hardly ever accurate. But we also, as leaders, as we've ascended, we've gotten into this habit of asking less and less questions and making more and more assumptions and then just telling people, right? I mean, that's honestly the model of leadership that most of us were raised with, right? It's the autocratic military leadership the, style. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Be an ex-military. Be an ex-military, right. You rise to that level because you're the best at doing something. Or it's expected. Right. And then what you do is you're the best at it. So you feel like, okay, well, I'm going to tell everybody what to do, why you need to do it, and then I'm going to expect you to do it. Well, and on top of that, if it's the only role model you've ever seen, you know, you've been, this is the only set of effective leaders I've ever seen. And that's what you mirror. It's like parenting. You only got to see your parents' model. Unless you break that pattern. Exactly right. Yeah. And take a different approach. I think, you know, in this scheme of things, somebody says, I've really had a bad day. I suspect you know what a bad day looks like. You know, it doesn't look like most days. <laughs> yeah. For you, you were talking about your audacious goals and your running career and marathons. What do you got cooking now for your next challenge or audacious goal? Now I'm working on two big missions. A mission with the book is to eradicate limiting beliefs and transform the world. I mean, if we think for a minute about how our lives, the lives of those we care about, and the world will be transformed when none of us suffer any longer from limiting beliefs or thinking that we're not good enough. We can't do that. We don't have enough to do something. The world will truly be a different place. So that's mission number one. And then mission number two with velocity is to elevate leadership, performance, and impact with greater velocity and ease. I've just put together some or gathered some anecdotal data as I've been working in this field over the years. And what I found is about 40% of all the leaders I run across are self-aware and they raise their hand willingly and say, hey, I know that I can be better. I want to improve and I'm willing to do the work to bring that about. And it's the other 60% that I also want to make a difference with because they're the ones who are still blind and they're probably like I was, maybe even worse, you know, when I was a CEO and was fired because I had behavioral blind spots and I didn't see them. The problem is that people are still leaving their organizations. No one will tell them the truth. Honestly, even pretty good leaders, no one has the balls to tell the CEO the truth. It's a career-limiting move. Well, yeah. Or they see that it is. Or they tell them on the way out the door, which is usually not received well. Well, but hold on a minute. The CEOs that we work with, they welcome that. They want debate. They want someone to disagree with them. And 
that's a healthy thing, right? To debate something and see another point of view. So for the new CEO, right, comes into an organization and the previous CEO is in the 60 percentile that you're talking about. And the new CEO says, look, I'm looking for feedback and discourse and I don't have it all figured out and so on. How does that CEO frame that to the organization where that occurs? Ah, this is lovely because this is something that we've just undergone with a leader, a CEO in that very circumstance. And first of all, he doesn't say, I don't have it all figured out, but he will admit, hey, I don't have all the best ideas. That's why I've assembled all of you, right? But he'll set that up to say, okay, in this confidential space where we meet, I'm going to encourage vulnerability. And you can say, I don't know and own it. And if you don't know, that's okay. But if you need to go figure something out, well, then do it, right? And we'll all support you to do it. Also, to be a facilitator, right? To be great at asking questions is how you coach people effectively, right? To keep asking the best question that gets them to do their best thinking, right? That's the most effective coaching. Do you have a favorite question? I have lots of favorites. What's one or two? If you could create any result that you wanted, what is it? What would it be? Any result that you wanted, what is it? Also, if you could rewind the clock and do it over, what would you do differently? Hugely revealing. But even sometimes leaders will share with me, as they were doing it, they almost had that hindsight going on like, I don't think this is maybe the best way I should be doing this, but I'm the leader and I have to follow this through, right? That is a pattern. That's exactly what we work on. Say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Take that awareness and actively make a shift to your approach before you take it. What approaches could you take? We'll talk through that. Because honestly, there's so much that goes on that I think it's incumbent upon CEOs, whether they're seasoned or they're new or they're somewhere in between, to be able to effectively help their senior leadership team, their team, whoever that is, think at a higher level. You know, I think about new CEO, got the job first time, never been CEO before. What advice would you offer to that CEO? Hire a coach immediately. Serious, because here's what I've seen. First of all, there's so much that you're taking on that you can't possibly retain clarity. You can't possibly remain clear. And you can only do that with the benefit of someone who is neutral, unbiased, and objective. And that is a coach. That is also a coach that doesn't answer to you in the organization, doesn't have any agenda, and they will tell you the truth. And they've worked with other people, other CEOs in your situation, and even more seasoned more successful CEOs than you are at this moment. That's huge. And they'll help you. They'll ask questions to help you see clearly and navigate your way. I mean, I've seen so many times, Bob, where the new CEO, they don't realize that they don't have that ability to see clearly until they've ascended to the big chair and they ultimately fail. Or they cost the organization and their team so much until they learn that, that it's very, very costly. Within your organization, not everybody's an ultra marathoner. And so how do you transmit the culture that you brought to your organization when you started as you continue to scale your organization? What do you do? Uh, 
I connect to everyone's why. So I literally ask them on an ongoing basis, what is your why that connects to our mission? What is it specifically? And then I just keep going back to that. A CEO of a millennial company, I'll just say, that is a surfer, a world traveler. He's a very interesting guy. He had me on his show and we did an email follow-up. And he said, let me just ask you, coach, how do I get my staff to care as much as I do about the work product that they put out? I'm constantly finding typos and errors and mistakes being made. And how do I get them to change that? I said, what's their why? Connect their why to your mission, the mission of the company. And then you can always go back to that and say, hey, with this work product, did you put out your best? Were you really achieving your why when you did that? Because the answer is going to be no. That is that internal motivation that is sustainable. And it's like the best driving force that any of us can ever tap into. As you talk to the folks, and some of us are like to read books that you like that are helpful on this topic, besides Unlimiting Your Beliefs, <laughs> which we have a copy of right here. Thank you. I'm going to say three books, but I'm a huge, I'm an avid reader. And so I could go on all day about books. But three of my favorites are What Got You Here Won't Get You There, Self-Deception and Leadership, which is by the Arbinger Institute. It's fabulous. And then The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin. And what all three of these books have in common, which always makes up my favorite book, is they reveal and relate the newest findings in how our minds work. And so then I can take that and synthesize it to achieve greater results faster. And I can apply that to myself and our employees, our coaches and clients. I love that stuff. And there's a book, I read the new book of expertise, new science of expertise. Oh, it's awesome. They were talking about uh, being able to memorize strings of numbers. And they used to think you could only do like 40 and people are doing like two and three and 400. It's just amazing. But something over the past couple of years that you should have said no to, what would that be and why? Oh, I should have said no to a big partnership that we had for almost three years. I should have terminated that partnership a year earlier than I did. I saw the writing on the wall. It didn't feel good. We were just continually, incrementally being asked to make compromises over time. And, you know, you take each one individually, it's not that big of a deal, right? But then you add them all on top of one another. And looking back, I just thought, oh my gosh, we've gotten so far off our path with this. And what it cost us was really being able to serve our market in a big way, which is the mission, right? So I had the feeling back then that I should have terminated it. And I was scared. You know, I think about your tenacity. You refer to it as hard-headedness, I think. You know, and I think about trying to make it work. And, you know, that challenge and, and there's that push-pull point. You go like, when is this no longer me trying to make it happen? This is fundamentally broken. Hard place to get to. Yeah. And I think that's where wisdom comes, right? Because when you have the benefit of wisdom, you can look at a situation like that and identify a benchmark. Hey, I'm not going to go past this. 
because then we will have overcompromised, and then it's not productive to try to work it out anymore. It's counterproductive. I didn't have that then, though. I see that you do keynote speaking, and I think about the dynamic between one-on-one and one-to-many. And when you're a keynote and you're trying to give value to your listeners in the audience, do you find that you can reach them in your keynote and move them to a different place? Yes. And that has come over time. So I studied a lot with Brian Tracy, who is an incredible teacher and legend. So I did what he told me, but there's so many more nuances to that, to be effective when you're one to many, especially in a live audience situation. I think I've finally gotten it finely tuned in because it's this great combination of enough personal details and story to make it relatable and enough facts and data and experience and meat and interaction and engagement in terms of some sort of technique that is going to move them forward. So in that case, what's most effective for me is to take an audience through identifying and then conquering limiting beliefs. And I find that that has the biggest impact, the most lasting impact, because quite frankly, I've done speeches before where the host has asked me to just share my Iron Man story and they want to know all the details about it, right? Which I give in the book and you shared that that was valuable to you. But what I found with that is that that does not move people forward. It's just a story. It's my story. And they do find it interesting and maybe it's inspiring, but it really ends there. You know, it really doesn't leave the room with them. They might remember me and my story, but who cares? There's all sorts of stories out there. It's really on my heart to move them forward, give them something. And this is why I wrote the book, to make these seven keys accessible to everyone. And again, to eradicate limiting beliefs and transform the world. So when I leave an audience, I want them all to take the worksheet to conquer their limiting beliefs. And I'm following up with them and helping them do that. That's where I think the best outcomes are created from keynotes. Where do people find you on social media? So best place to link up with me is LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. I think that's fabulous. Next would be Facebook. And then after that is all the others. Instagram, Twitter, whatever else is out there. I have a social media person on my team who does a fabulous job because that's what she's great at. I'm a gifted coach. She's great. She's gifted at social media. But all of it, you find us under Velocity Leaders. Okay. Last two questions quote that you think about or use or something that's a trigger for you mentally? There's two. Number one is the state of your life is nothing more than the state of your mind. It's by Dr. Wayne Dyer. And that's also what I would put on the front page of the newspaper. The state of your company is nothing more than the state of your mind. We can change that. The second one is by Einstein. And he said, we cannot solve problems using the same level of thinking that created them. Last question. So the parent that's listening, and I have children that have limiting beliefs for one reason or another. What advice would you offer to that parent to help that child get over that limiting belief? Well, go to my website, which I'll just give you the short way into the technique to conquer limiting beliefs and to help your child do it. Go to velocityleadershipconsulting.com forward slash greater, meaning greater success. And on there, you'll find a worksheet that's labeled Conquer Limiting Beliefs. 
And it works for anyone, anytime, any situation, whether it's personal, professional goals, dreams, whatever. And kids, adults, those of us who are edging toward the twilight of our careers, whatever you want to call it, it works for everyone because we all have an unconscious mind. And that's the level that it works on. So I would say, first of all, open up your own mind to make sure that you're not placing your own limiting beliefs on them, because we do that a lot as human beings. My own husband did that with me when I decided to pursue the Iron Man. For the full story about that, you'll have to buy the book. So first of all, realize that. Then just help your child go through it. Recognize when they are suffering from limiting beliefs and walk with them through it. Well, this has been fun. It has. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. So, all right, folks, get the book. And if you're a business owner, corporate CEO, find yourself stuck, the worst thing you can do is not call. So with that, we'll call it good. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Bob.